Thank you, Bill. As our children go to children's church, uh, we just trust that God will really use that time in their lives as we hope he'll do that in our lives as well. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you don't, uh, pick one up in a chair behind you, beside you, or in front of you, and uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. And even though uh, it's only been one week since we've uh, looked at uh, the gospel of Luke and the truth that God has for us uh, out of this gospel, it seems like it's been a month. Uh, And so I I always have to resist the temptation of reviewing everything we've already said in the past, but I'll try to do that this morning. This morning we're going to be talking about the truth about transformation. And and really that word transformation has the whole idea of of change, how uh, that our lives uh, are where they are right now, but is that where we want to leave them? And, And do we believe that we have any hope for change? Is there something that God wants to do and can He do in our lives? And so this morning we're going to look at it, and it's a rather dramatic story, uh, but it has some very simple, powerful truths for each one of our lives. And so this morning, um, I'm just, just really trusting that God's really going to speak in each one of our lives as we look at the truth, the change, as we look at the truth changer, which is Jesus. Uh, so let's look to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, I do pray as we look in your word that you might really speak into our lives, that we might understand that uh, this is not just a dusty old book, but this is a book that's alive uh, it's, uh, it's powerful, it can, it can change our lives as we realize it comes from the one who can change our lives. And I pray you might uh, just speak into us in those areas that you want us to hear. And we praise in Christ's name, amen. Uh, the, the truth about transformation, the truth about change. Uh, the, one of the truths about that is there are uh, there's some opposing forces in our world that are uh, trying to make changes. Uh, we have a rather significant advertising campaign that goes on throughout our culture trying to buy certain products and trying to entice us. This this is what you need to have a better smile. This is what you need to to look physically better. This is what you need to to, uh, to drive if you're really going to be one that people look toward and uh, are impressed with. But we're not talking about those uh, simple changes in terms of what you might uh, even decide to eat this morning. Anybody, when you go to a restaurant, always order the same thing? And you're afraid if you, if you do order something different, you just pay for something you don't like. And, and so as we think about change, change is one of the greatest fears that people have in their lives. Uh, but also as we think about change, it's, it's the greatest opportunity to, to not, not stay in the same place you've always been. And, and realize that there's something better for you if you really make changes that, that need to be made. But sometimes we resist change because we're afraid if we try change, it, it won't work. And we'd rather stay where we are rather than experience the pain of failure. But we want to realize that we're not alone in this whole journey of becoming what God wants us to be. But as we think about the challenges we have, that's, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. It's always been there. As Jesus would talk about trusting him and he would explain it and teach it. And then he'd send out those who had heard him in the in the, in the school of, of life and saying, well, now apply what I just taught. And if you have been with us week, I won't go back to the beginning, but you'll realize that, that Jesus had, had taught about faith. And he talked about faith begins with God planting a seed. And, and that seed either comes to, to true growth or it kind of just wallows for a while and then it, then it dies. And the soil that he plants his seed in can be a rocky soil, it can be a superficial soil, it can be an infested in a sick soil that looks like it's healthy but it really isn't and it gets choked out by the worries and pleasures of this world. Or it's a soil that really brings forth fruit. And as you think about trusting God, uh, trusting God is both a, 
As some say, it, I don't, this is an English class, but it's both a noun and a verb. It's a noun in that it is what you believe and who you believe in, but then it's an active, that's the verb part of it, where are you trusting the one you believe and hold on to and are convinced is the truth. Well, he sent out his disciples just, uh, just moments before the, the account we're going to read, and he, he, he sent them out on the Sea of Galilee, and as they were traveling across the sea, a storm came up, and, and Jesus purposely went to sleep. He was exhausted, he was tired, and and they had been obedient to him. And as we go through the storms of life, and we need to realize this, if, if we're going down God's path, it doesn't mean God's path is always going to be easy. And, and you're going to go through difficult times. And I'm just you know, looking out at Alan Christie. Al, uh, Christie's mom passed away, and there's going to be a service for her this Saturday. It's in your bulletin. And, and you go through things like that, and you, and you just wonder, well, where is God? Well, why, didn't, why didn't he heal my mom? Or why didn't he bring her more life? But we can be right in the center of God's will and still experience the storms. And he's saying, just trust me, just trust me. And in this particular occasion, they didn't trust him. And he, he proclaimed a question, well, where, where is your faith? And it wasn't so much the amount of their faith, but where, where, was, where was the object of their faith? Where, where was the one they were trusting in? Were they trusting in their own resources, their own ability as experienced fishermen to be able to navigate the waters in the storm? Or was it the one who created the storms? And so just with a word, Jesus calmed the seas and, and the waves and the winds, and, and they learned another lesson on faith. But now they're going to go outside their familiar places of living, and that storm had probably blown them off course. But even when we think we're off course, God can place us right in that direction He wants us to go. And so they, they get to the other side of the lake, and, and what we want to see this morning is some truths about what it means to experience how God transforms lives. And I've got some simple truths uh, to kind of highlight or hang the, the main points this morning on, and there's, there's a lot of rabbit trails we could go on, as you'll see in the text, but uh, there's some simple, straightforward things God wants us to remember about change. And the first one is this, it, it can happen in the most unlikely places with the most unlikely people and solve life's greatest problems. We, we sometimes, either in evaluating ourselves or evaluating people we know, we, we kind of look at some people or ourselves in some areas, and it's, it's hopeless. There is no way change or transformation can happen because of the place we're in or the, the people that we are or the people that we know and who they are or, or, or maybe the problems they're facing. Well, let's just look at how... Transformation happened in the most unlikely places, the most unlikely people with life's greatest problems. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. As Luke writes this gospel, he wants us to know above all else the truth about the things they've been taught. And so he's not making up stories here. He's relating what actually happened in the life of Jesus with his disciples. Then they sailed to the country of the Gezerines which is opposite of Galilee. Now, we don't know a whole, a whole lot about the Gezerines other than it's not, in, it's not in Israel. It's now on the other side, and it's primarily a Gentile territory. There's some, there is some Jewish people that have kind of mixed their culture with the, the, the non-Jewish culture. And, and the message is getting out that the change agent, Jesus, the truth, is, is coming not only to the promised people of Israel, but to everyone 
And the story goes on. And when he, Jesus, came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. So they're now going to an unlikely place, not familiar territory, whether it be Galilee or Judea. Now they're in the Gezerines, and it's an unlikely place to them to see God work because they even wonder whether God wanted to work in other places. And now they met a person that we would say um, was an unlikely prospect. And sometimes we look at that. We look at people, oh, that's a good prospect. That person, if they really came to faith or relationship with God, God could do a lot of things with them because look at all they, he has or she has to offer God. Well, this is one of those people who said he has nothing to offer God. Why? One is what's happening to him spiritually. He's possessed with demons. And I don't know about you, that, I would consider that a pretty big problem, wouldn't you? However you understand the demonic world, the unseen world, that would be a pretty big challenge. He was possessed with demons, not singular but plural, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time. And was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Uh, most of us, if somebody people, where do you live, we give them an address. Well, if this particular man had given an address, it wouldn't be at a house. It would be, well, it's, it's that graveyard over there. And basically, graveyards there, well, there were a variety of different ways they buried people, but primarily a lot of, a lot of times they put them in caves. They, they put them in locations. And, and so he, he definitely was living among the dead. He was living basically where no one else wanted him to live. He wasn't, he wasn't living among the living. He was living among the dead. And it really describes what he was wearing. He was, he was naked. He hadn't put on clothes for a long time. Now, you know, as I read this story, I said, well, how, if we were to put this on the, you know, on the film, you know, how would we rate this particular film? Would this now go from G to B cheap to PG-13? Maybe it's R-rated, maybe it's X, whatever that next one is, okay? Because he, it appears that he's buck naked here. But it's quite possible he's not necessarily buck naked. What he hear, he has so little clothes on that it's basically he's living like he's naked. And he's living in such a way that all the... The, the weather that changes would, would be so debilitating on his physical body. He's, just, he's living, as some have said, dehumanized, animalized, and marginalized. Away from other people, and we're going to find out they did, went to great lengths to keep him away from themselves, uh, the, the, the respectable group. Uh, and and he, had, he had lost everything. And so, as we see this, this person comes out to Jesus, and we're going to see in the, in the text, and it's pretty hard to divide the text exactly at the points I'm going to share with you, but, but Jesus does not reject him. And, and in fact, he encounters him. Even though he's from the most unlikely place, he's in a Gentile-dominated area, knows little about the things of God, and even from an idolatrous place... He is one that he's going to touch, the most unlikely prospect, and his life is going to be dramatically transformed. And, and when we read accounts like this or we read or, or hear the testimonies of others who have been changed, what it all it always do for us is remember, just as we sung earlier in the morning, his grace is what? It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. 
we're going to see that this person who had nothing going for him, and if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you'll, you'll know in Matthew, Matthew records there were actually two de- uh, demonic possessed people here. There were two people who were ravishing in the tombs with very little clothing, trying to just get whatever things they can to eat. But he's focused on the other two gospel accounts, Mark and Luke, at at this one particular individual of the two that he, he encounters in a dramatic way and begins to change him. I put in your outlines this morning a, a probably familiar verse to you, whether you're that familiar with the Scriptures, and if you're not that familiar with Scriptures here this morning, you've come, we're glad that you're here. But at, this is what Jesus said in another occasion. And, and looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are what? Possible. So when we look at ourselves kind of in a hopeless situation or other people that we care about in a hopeless situation... Uh, in some ways, what we're analyzing or describing is probably fairly accurate. It is, it is impossible in terms of thinking how this person's going to change or how we are going to change in this particular area. And Jesus in Matthew 19 is talking about those who are so preoccupied with the pleasures or riches of this world. How, how can they ever come to know God? Because they don't think they need to know God. And, of course, that's one of the challenges. You will never change unless you think you need to what? Isn't that true? That's always the first step. You, you will never change. I will never change if I think I've got my act completely together. So it's impossible for people who can't see their change to, to ever change. It is impossible for them, but it's, it's possible for God. Because he is the one who draws out our need for him. And, and really that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin and the reality of judgment, the need to turn, and, and the blessedness of knowing him. And so people who don't even see their need to change can change. Because with God, all things are possible. I, 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 th- I throw this in just for free here. As you look at this man, and we're going to see some more things about him in a moment, but he didn't even look like a man anymore. He, he was living like an animal. And if there's anything Satan tries to do, the, the evil one, is he, as theologians will say, the amago dei, which is, I think it's Latin, I never took Latin, but it's the idea of in the image of God. It, it, what, what Satan does is try to destroy a person's understanding that they are made in the image of God, that they have importance, they have value. That their source is not by some accident, but God sovereignly brought them into life. And, and even, even before they come into relationship with him, they, they have the marks of God on them. But, but, but when th- people see themselves as, as just some kind of animal existing and, and doing whatever they feel or like, or, or they've done such horrendous things that they have no worth, and Satan's won the battle, hasn't he? Where, where he, he, he or she loses all sense of identity that, that God has made them and made them in his image in the midst of all creative life. We are, we are at the, the top of the food chain. There is nothing that compares with the people God has made. 
And this is where this man was, in the most unlikely place, the Gezerines, a most unlikely person who was rejected by everyone and with life's greatest problems. And with man, all things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. Well, let's, let's move on. And, and this is where we could take a lot of rabbit trails. But not only can it can happen, transformation in, in most unlikely places, with the most unlikely people, with the life's greatest problems. Transformation can happen from the hand of God because it can defeat the devil and the demonic. And, and let's look on as we see this. After this man encounters Jesus, seeing Jesus, verse 28, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, and for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven from by the demon in the desert. Then here, here, here we see the city or the people in the city responding to this man who had become possessed by evil or responded in, in erratic and maybe destructive ways. And, and they t- tried to imprison him with chains and, and binding him with everything they could to tie him up. And the demonic was so powerful he could be broken free from the physical enslavement but not the spiritual enslavement. And Jesus asked him, now speaking to the demonic, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons, again, it's not in the singular, but many demons had entered him. Yet they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, at this moment, we, we, could, we could take a you know, side trip into well, how do we understand demon possession or the demonic world or the devil or uh, the unseen forces in this world that the Bible is clear about. Yeah, we, we struggle with understanding things we see and, and even more so about the things we can't see. But what we can do is at least make observation from what is said here. What, what we have is a man possessed by many demons. How many? We don't know. We know that the demon's name was Legion, and Legion was a a military term for the Roman Empire, and it was, a, it was those who were over 6,000 soldiers. So you could, if you want to take the highest number, this person might have had 6,000 demons. If, if, if you understand Matthew's account, where there were two of them, you divide that, that 6,000 by two, and you have how many? 3,000, so you might have had 3,000 demons. Later on, we're going to find out that Jesus powerfully sends the demons into swine or pigs, and there were about 2,000 pigs. So if you only put one per pig, that would be how many demons? 2,000. Sometimes the word legion was used in a more uh, generic sense, just symbolizing strength and power. A legion of of Roman Empire was powerful, and it was a number that was, was significant. So whatever the number was, we don't know for sure, but there were multiple demonic influences in his life. It's interesting, too, as you think about this, uh, just, just the response of the demonic. And he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't possessed by, by the devil or Satan or Lucifer himself. Lucifer is not omnipresent. He can't be very, every place at once. But he has his own cohorts. And, and, and he, they were possessed. He was possessed by this legion of, of demons. 
But it's interesting what, what demons understand. Number one, from James, we know that the demons believe there is only one God. In fact, in James chapter 2, I think it's around verse 19, James kind of chides those who think, well, I'm, I'm, I believe in God. And he said, well, you're so impressed that you say you believe in God. Well, even the demons believe there's one God. So, so you know, they're monotheists, if you want to talk about it from a theological perspective. Does that mean they know God because they know he's only one? Well, no. The other thing you know about demons is they know about the deity of Jesus. So they understand that Jesus is more than just a teacher because you are the son of the most high God. And the nomenclature son, it, it, you, are, you are of the same essence or substance as the heavenly father. And so they realized he was the son of God. Interesting enough, they, they also knew about the coming judgment. Because they said, don't, don't torment us and send us into the abyss. If you want to look up a cross-reference, look at First Peter, no, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where, where we have the account of Peter saying that, that if you look at some of the evil done by the demonic, uh, the demons in the Old Testament, that God had already judged them into a place of the abyss, and they are there waiting for the final judgment. And, and these were demons that had freedom and say, well, don't send us where you've already sent others. So interesting, theologically, they, they, they were pretty sharp. They, they were monotheists. They believed in only one God. They believed in the deity of Jesus. They understand there was a judgment, the judgment of hell. You could also say they also believed in prayer. Now, where do you get that? They begged and continually implored Jesus to, to have mercy on them. And actually, Jesus did answer that prayer. He didn't send them immediately into the abyss. So, so these demons ha have an awareness of what's going on. But the reality here is that what you see is that Jesus has power over the unseen evil forces. We're all aware of why Jesus came. I mean, even in his name, we know what, why Jesus came. Jesus came to save us from our, from our sins. But he came not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Now, God's children still sin, but now we have the power not to sin. And that's the progressive part of knowing him and depending upon him and obeying him and allowing his truth to come in and continually change us. But that would, that would be a hopeless pursuit if, if somehow there was a greater power on the outside than there is a power on the inside. Isn't that true? I mean, why, why try anything that you know you can't do? Well, the Bible says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the, the world. He's talking about the unseen forces here. In 1 John 3, 8, it says this, The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the, of the devil. So th th what I'm trying to build around here, the truth about transformation, number one, he can change anybody and has changed everybody. He can continue to change anybody. No matter where they're from, who they are, or what the problem is. And number two, we need to realize our greatest enemy has been defeated. Jesus has power over the unseen forces. Now, the unseen forces are still moving around, but we need to realize that we're victorious in Christ, that he sets us free from his power over us. Well, how, do, how are we supposed to respond when we're, we're tempted to, to go down the wrong path and, and change maybe not to the good but for the, 
for the worse. Well, part of it we need to realize that when we're tempted to do evil, in, first, in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says that when we are tempted to, to, to do evil, we're enticed by our own lusts, our own desires. So we need to be honest and say, well, you know, who, who made me do it? Well, the devil didn't make me you do it. You, you allowed your desires to run amok, and, and you basically did what you wanted to do. And in reality, the humbling thing about anything in life is to realize when we... When we do something we know we shouldn't do, uh, who's really the ultimate person we can only blame? Ourselves. Because we chose to go down a path. We were tempted to our own desires, and there were other influences that kind of maybe drove us, but we have to own up. And particularly here, the evil one has been defeated. Now, what, what caused this man to be what you'd call possessed or uh, and there are various degrees, and this is the part I can't go down the path too far because of time, is that there are various degrees of influence by the evil one. And you might wonder, why was this man engulfed by a multitude of the demonic, the demon world? Well, the only thing that we know in Scripture particularly is that, uh, in, in, like for instance, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 27, it said, don't let the evil one have any opportunity in your life. And so what happened, well, step by step by step by step, he allowed his own desires to be the governance in his own life, and then he gave open door room for the evil one to come in progressively and more completely. And he quit resisting the evil and began to embrace it. And, and that's, that's what happens in our lives when we allow the, the evil influences in this world to take more of what and who we are. And we need to realize that, that the main thing of what the evil one does is not so much possession, but deception. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1, it says, be, be, be very aware of the deceiving spirits who keep telling you lies. And one of the lies that Satan does, and in, in, uh, I think it's recorded in Revelation chapter 12, around verse 9, is that he is the accuser of the brethren. And that's one of the things he continually does is try to attack who we are, being in Christ and made in his image. And so he, he accuses us all the time. But the other thing I want to make very plain here, in 2 Corinthians, I, I have in your outlines 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15 is that what Satan does, he disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. Now, most of the time we would say, you know, either he's dressed in a red costume with a pitchfork, you know, at least at Halloween, or we would say that he's an angel of darkness. Now, he is an angel of darkness, but he, cl he clothes himself as an angel of light. Now, many people will quote 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, but what they forget is after verse 14, there's verse... 15, you are an extremely bright group here, right? You know, and you know what verse 15 says? It says that, and it should not surprise us that his servants are dressed up as servants of righteousness. And so often what he does is he influences us, not in some mystical way, but in a physical way by other people. People who might look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're leading us astray. Have you ever been deceived by anybody? 
in any area of life? We, we all have. And, and, and it wasn't obvious. They didn't have a you know, name guard that said, uh, I'm a deceiver. They looked really good. They sounded really good. They, they were great communicators. And all of a sudden, we're like, how did, I, how did I fall for that? Well, that's what Satan does. He, he deceives us. He, he makes us believe a lie. Uh, if, have you ever talked to people who are still believing a lie about themselves? I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. There's, not, there's nothing good I can do. Um, my, my life is, is ruined forever. I have nothing to offer. Where does that come from? Let me tell you, that doesn't come from God, does it? That comes from the pit of hell. And, and Satan didn't show up to them physically and say that to them, but he has people out there. Maybe, maybe it was family members. Maybe it was friends that said certain things. And all of a sudden, that's, that's the picture they had of, them, of themselves seen through the eyes and the ears and the mouth of others. And either we, we trust what God has said about us or we'll trust what others say about us or what we say to ourselves. And, and that's how he works. In uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, it says this, be, 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 of, be of sober spirit, which means don't get so influenced by all the things out there. Be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, your enemy, is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, he, he's not going to devour you most often like he does this demoniac in Luke chapter 8 where you're, you're running around living in, the, in a cemetery with very little clothing on and screaming and, and such bizarre behavior that, that no one wants to be around you. You know, again, as you look at the numbers... The, uh, Mark and Luke have one demoniac, and Matthew has two, and that's not a contradiction there. One just gave more details. But I'm sure he didn't recruit a whole lot of people to adopt his lifestyle. Would you agree with that? There weren't a lot of people. Can I sign up and be just like you and live where you live and wear what you wear and do what you do? That, there wasn't a whole lot of attraction there, was there? And, and so we need to understand that that's probably the... Uh, well, not probably, it is not the norm for Satan to work that way. But what he does is he, he deceives us about who we are or what we ought to be about. In fact, right before 1 Peter 5, 8 is 1 Peter 5. Okay, get that one. You just have to subtract 8 minus 1, 7, all right? In, in verse 7 he goes, he says, um, cast your cares upon me for I care for you, but be on the alert. Your enemy, the, your adversary, is going about like a lion seeking to devour you. Well, if you make some kind of connection between verse 7 and verse 8, is that we can, we can be led astray by the evil one just by being overwhelmed by the concerns and cares and anxieties of this life. Now, should we be concerned about important things? Of course we should. But somewhere there's that, there's that line or that fence where we drop over from being concerned to be filled with anxiety and worry, and it consumes us. How, how functional are we when we are overburdened by our concerns and fears? We're, we're not very functional, are we? We're, we're not very productive when we, they consume us. Now, there are heavy burdens that people have, but somehow within that, we need to cast them to Him. And why did Peter say that? Because 
our natural tendency is hold on to them for dear life. So what could have that demoniac done before that man filled with a legion of demons before he got where he was? Well, I, I really like, I haven't read it yet, but in your outline, I put in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And the next phrase there is so important, and he will flee from you. Now, we ought to be aware, we, we have an unseen evil force out there, the devil and his demons. But we're on the winning side. Our game plan is not complicated. We resist him, which we say, I want to be able to say no to the things I need, say, need to say no to. That's critical. Because if you don't say no to the things you need to say no to, you will not be able to say what to the things you should say what to. You won't be able to say yes. So be, uh, be able to say no and then be able to say yes. Submit to God and resist the, the evil one, and he will run from you. And he'll work on somebody else because he doesn't want his, his projects to destroy winning. So he'll go on to someone else he thinks might lose because they don't do the simple. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Does that make sense? That, to me, I think, is the, is the center of what spiritual warfare is about. Learning to say no and learning to say yes. It's as simple as that. And that's why this man, I believe, got where he was because he didn't say yes to the things he should have said yes to. And he, said no to the, and he didn't say no to things he should have said no to. And so he got consumed by evil. So what are we, t- what are we saying about truth? Number one is God can change anybody no matter Where are you from, who you are, or what problem you're facing? Number two, life's greatest enemy, the evil one, and his demonic realm has been defeated. Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, the penalty of our sins, he came to save us from the power of our sins. So he he brought to death, destroyed the works of the evil one. Let's move on in the story. Verse 32. Now there was a herd of many swine, pigs, feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And so this is one of the reasons we were pretty convinced this wasn't a predominantly Jewish uh, population. And if it was Jewish, they, they weren't particularly going down the the, the the straight and narrow path because uh, they don't eat too much bacon, all right? So they, they, there's all kinds of pigs going around here. And, and so it goes on. Jesus uh, responds to their petition and says, okay, I won't send you to the abyss, the place of judgment now. But he puts them in some, some pigs, and they, the pigs um, go down the wrong bank, and they drown. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported uh, in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus. Now, if you stop right there, you, you might be saying, if you hadn't read the account, well, what kind of response are they going to have? Are they going to be excited that this man that they could not control? They had tried to shackle him, bind him up, keep him out of uh, their way, which could have been harm's way for them, and they were unable to do it. They had succeeded for at least the most part to get him away from them, but they could not control him. So you would have thought they would be excited that Jesus had solved one of their problems. But let's read on. And they found the man for whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. 
Now, that's a pretty good description of what God wants to happen in our lives when, uh, when we come to know him. Uh, if we don't have enough clothing on, get what? Put some clothes on. But what is really significant here is this man's mind was not right, and now it was right. It was everywhere, and now God had brought it back to the place where he could, he could think clearly, he could speak clearly, he could live clearly. But what was the response? It says, and they became frightened. It's the word phobos. They, uh, they were filled with phobia about Jesus. Those who had, been rep- uh, had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon possessed had been made well. And that's another good word picture. What, is it, what does it mean to, to find relationship with God? You know, the things that are wrong with you are, are made right. The things that are sick are made well. That doesn't mean that God is still not going to continually work out the things he's put in so that we live out what, what we've been made right about. But now they saw this man who wasn't right, right. They, they saw this man who was sick and he was now well. And all the people of the country of the Gezerines and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And you're what's happening here? And we don't really know what their source of fear is. We can make some logical assumptions. Number one is, particularly if, if those were their pigs and you just lost 2,000 pigs, how did that impact you? In what area? Financially, right? And basically, we can tell a lot about ourselves, but how, how do we deal with our money? How do we do the resources we have? No matter how much we have or don't have, how we, how we deal with it is a window in our soul. And, and now, now they had lost much of their income, 2,000 pieces of their property. No matter how much it had helped this other person, was gone. The, the other thought here is that they're filled with great fear because what did, what did Jesus do in this man? It related to the, and let's see if I can draw this out of you. The, the, the message is the truth about transformation. What had Jesus just done to this man? He had transformed him. He had changed him. Now, being honest with all of this, to continue this, this is, suppose this is a small group here. What are most people afraid of? They're afraid of what? Change. And all of a sudden, they, they were in, in the presence of Jesus who radically changed this person's life. And they became fearful. Maybe there's some things in my life that need to what? Need to change. The truth about transformation is e- either we will embrace it or we'll run from it. And they were filled with fear because they weren't sure they wanted to change. Verse 38 and 39. But the man from the demons had gone out and was begging him that he might accompany him. This is Jesus. But he sent him away. So the, the town was fearful about Jesus and just pleaded and implored him, just take off. And he got in a boat and took away. But before that happened, this man, who had been radically transformed, radically changed, comes to Jesus. He had been sitting at his feet, I'm sure, just hearing everything that Jesus was telling about this new life that he now had. He said, I want want to go wherever you go. I want to be wherever you are. I want to be involved in whatever you're involved in. I want to be right next to you. And Jesus said what? No. No. 
And what he told him is what he tells us. Almost sounds like a passage we ought to memorize. Look at verse 39. Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So we went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. As you think about the truth about transformation, it can happen in the most unlikely places, to the most unlikely people with life's greatest problems. It can defeat life's greatest foes, the devil and, and the demonic. But what we need to realize, it, it can work and does work using you and me with people we know. See, what happened with this demoniac, however you want to describe him, this man who was, who was naked and living in the tombs, who was so erratic in his behavior, people tried to bind him with chains and ropes. He was a transformed man. And what Jesus said, look, I, I want to make you my first missionary to the, the non-Jewish people, which is what, what Gentiles are. And I want you to go home and talk to the people in your oikos. I want you to talk to people that you know, that, that know you. And, and they're going to say, well, <laughs> something must have happened because I knew what he was B.C. before Christ. And now I can see him A.C. after Christ. And I want to know H.C. how he came to know Christ. I, I want to understand, I want to hear from the, the one who's experienced the ABCs of the gospel. You know, he admitted his need. <laughs> and the demonic within him admitted their need. And asked, asked to be as far away from Jesus as possible. And the man within the possession of all the evil forces listened to Jesus and was willing to turn from his sin. He came to that point where he believed who Jesus is and put his trust in him, and then he made a commitment to, to say, I'll go wherever you go, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And Jesus said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and tell people what you've experienced. And he didn't have a long time of training, did he? It's quite possible it was just that latter part of that day. And, and he, he couldn't say, well, I don't know enough. He said, you know what you do know. Just tell people what you've experienced. You once were blind, now you see. You once were filled with evil, now you've been made clean. You once knew nothing about God, now you know God. And how did it happen? I met Jesus. I heard a couple great experiences this week that now I don't have time for. But uh, people who just, just like this encounter people just in their life and had opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And they responded because they knew them. And experienced and wanted to experience what they had experienced. And they had done just what this man had done. They just returned to the people they know, shared what they had experienced. And God drew that person to faith in Christ. That's what God wants us to do. And it wasn't that it was an overnight experience for one. It was like many years before this person crossed the line of faith. But they did it. And for others, it was planting the seed. But this is what God wants us to do, is understand the truth about, transfer, about transformation it works by using you and me, simply telling our story to people we know and, and then allowing God to do what he does. We don't know what kind of soil the seed we're throwing out, but we know that God wants us to plant that seed for others. The so what is simply, do we believe that? Do we believe that, that God can change us? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Our past is our past. 
Our present and future is in God's hands. And our active part of it is, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed. How? By the renewing of your mind, believing what God says, not what the world says. And God will do in our lives what he wants to do and will be used by him in the lives of others who so desperately need it for whatever, whatever place they're in, whatever kind of people they are, whatever problems they're facing. Some are obvious and some are not. But God uses his people to do his work. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to know that that no matter where we are and whatever changes you want to make, that you can change us. Father, we want to cooperate with the changes you want to make. We want to say, God, what's the next step in my life that you want me to take? Where where do you want me to be more faithful? Where do you want me to to say yes uh, to things that you want me to do and no to the things that maybe preoccupy or distract my life? And, and Father, we, we thank you that it's, it's only by the grace of God, the goodness of God, that we could ever go down your path. Thank you that you are the one who changes. Changes us for the good. And help us to live that out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.